This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We've had some big names on the show. Dr. Fauci, you know, the most prominent. Mm -hmm. But he does have to report to somebody. We all do. We all have a boss, right? That would be Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health. And today we'll talk to Dr. Collins on this podcast to ask about vaccines and when they could arrive. California, Oregon, Washington team up to issue new travel advisories and guidelines. But will they work to stop the spread of the virus? Elon Musk is a character. We'll get into how his latest comments are raising questions about the accuracy of testing. Talk is out there about more shutdowns and large lockdowns. What happens to the economy then? And the latest surge in cases impacting sports, football. Can the NFL and college football make it through their seasons? Let's start, of course, with Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health. He's been actively involved in the fight against the virus. So, Doctor, uh, thanks for being with us. Take us through the reality, as you see it, of a timeline for the Pfizer vaccine or another good one. Well, let's just say it's pretty amazing that we're having that conversation this close to what might be uh, and at least an emergency use approval of one or more of these vaccines given that generally that's a five, six, seven, eight-year effort, and we only learned about this virus back in January. So the scientific community has pulled together in really remarkable ways, uh, both at NIH, uh, certainly our colleagues in industry, the FDA, the CDC. It's been all hands on deck uh, 24-7 over the course of these last 11 months. And it is gratifying indeed to see that Pfizer, first out of the gate, uh, was able to announce that in the first look at the data in their trial of some 44,000 participants, the vaccine appears to have really high efficacy, higher than most of us dared to hope for. We thought we'd be doing pretty well if we got, you know, 70, 75 percent efficacy, but instead it's 90, maybe 95 That bodes really well for Moderna, which is the one that's just right behind them and which is also has made an announcement that it's time for their first look at the data. And so in the next few days, we're likely to hear how that turns out. This, of course, is what people are hoping for. But let's be realistic here. This still will need to go through the FDA review process. Hasn't even been submitted yet to FDA. Pfizer is going to do that fairly soon. FDA will need to be convinced not only is it effective, but it's also safe, which means looking at at least two months' worth of data from the trial to see if anybody had any kind of side effects that weren't expected. And then uh, if all goes well, it seems as if we might see doses beginning to be available in late November, very late November, early December, somewhere in there. But there will not be enough doses for everybody on day one. Operation Warp Speed has manufactured a backlog of doses, but it will be primarily for the highest risk people. And then everybody will gradually over the course of the coming months get their chance. But of course, it makes sense to give it to the people who need it most at the beginning. So I have a question for you, uh, uh, doctor. Uh, Among the 44,000 people in the Pfizer trial, and I've talked about this on the show, I'm I'm one of them. So what happens to, and I've seen this in in the uh, press, other people who are in the trial raising the question, since I don't know, for example, if I got the actual vaccine or if I got a placebo, what happens to people uh, like uh, me or others in this, vac- you know, 44,000? What happens to the half of that number who perhaps got the uh, placebo? 
Well, the promise is uh, that if you are part of the trial, uh, once the trial is unblinded, the people who got the placebo will then be offered the active vaccine. So exactly the timing of that is not entirely clear because, again, let's be totally straight about this. FDA has not yet blessed this as safe and effective. Those steps have to go forward over the coming weeks. But, yeah, you as a participant will get the chance at some not terribly distant point uh, to get the vaccine if you happen to be a placebo recipient. Good news for you, Charles. Uh, Doctor, what do you make of this April idea that that's when we could see the widespread distribution for not just, you know, the people who are in the upper age groups or the healthcare workers, that then you would have options and places to go and get your shot? Well, it's going to depend a lot on how many of the current vaccines actually do turn out to be safe and effective. We just talked about two of them, Pfizer and Moderna. There are four others that are being supported through Operation Warp Speed, two of which are already enrolling at a high level. That would be the Johnson & Johnson trial and the AstraZeneca trial, two others of which will start probably in the coming weeks. And it'll depend if we have six different vaccines and each of them has had a lot of doses prepared in hopes that they would work, then we're going to be in a better space. If some of those turn out not to work, it'll take a little longer to get enough doses for everybody. So let's be careful about this. I think I was on a panel with Tony Fauci last night sort of trying to see the best way to answer this. Somewhere between sort of April and June, I think, is when we might expect to get to the point of having sufficient doses for most people who want that. President Trump at his news conference said that they are going to reduce hospitalizations. But in point of fact, we don't really know that yet, do we? We don't know from the limited, actually just a news release from Pfizer, the limited information that we have, whether that vaccine or any of the others for that matter, whether they uh, prevent serious illnesses, whether they prevent people from getting COVID cases that end up uh, forcing them to uh, go to the ICU or perhaps even a ventilator. We don't know any of that yet, do we? There's a lot we don't know because, again, it's early days in analyzing the first 94 cases of people who came down with COVID-19 who had been part of that trial, people like you. And basically, when you look at those 94 cases, uh, 90 of them were in the people who got the placebo and four of them were in the people who got the vaccine. That's why we know the vaccine must have been really good, because otherwise it would have been split evenly. Uh, But in terms of the details, we do know, therefore, that people got the vaccine simply didn't get sick. They didn't come in saying, I've got uh, a cough, I've got a fever, whereas the people who got the placebo did. So that's really encouraging. A big question, though, we don't know is does the vaccine actually also prevent people from getting infected with the virus and not even knowing it? Uh, Because we know that can happen with this diabolical virus. It loves to do that. It loves to get into somebody's system and cause them to walk around with it and spread it to other people without even knowing they have it. We will need to find out, and it's not as trivial as you might think, uh, whether this vaccine prevents those asymptomatic viral carriers which would be great because that would give us a better chance of really knocking this pandemic out. Without getting too technical, so translation in a way that I can understand it, (laughs) how does this vaccine work? Because it's not like the flu vaccine, right? It's not like a dead virus. So how have they been able to pull this off so fast? And what does it do once it gets in me? It's incredibly elegant uh, biotechnology, and I think NIH will take a little credit for inventing a big part of how this has been (laughs) possible to do. 
Now, basically, what you're trying to do is to get your immune system uh, to recognize the spike protein that's on the surface of this uh, COVID-19 virus. You've all seen pictures of this uh, sphere with the spike sticking out. Those are the spike proteins, which are the first thing that the body encounters. They're the way that this virus gets into your cells. You want to block that spike protein. So the way this particular technology works is uh, every protein gets made initially uh, by RNA, which codes for the protein that gets translated. So let's inject the RNA that codes for that spike protein into your shoulder muscle. Your muscle goes, oh, this is RNA. I'm supposed to turn that into protein. And it does. And it makes this spike protein that your body normally wouldn't make. And your immune system goes, whoa, I haven't seen that before. And that looks like something that I'd better try to do something to fight off. So I'm going to make a whole bunch of antibodies against it. And they do. And then you're immunized. Uh, that's how it works. And it's so fast because you don't have to even have the virus in your lab to make this kind of a vaccine. You just have to have on the Internet the letters of the RNA sequence uh, that China published back on January 9th, and you can start the design. And that's what we did at NIH for the Moderna trial, and that's what Pfizer did also. So, Dr. Collins, here comes the $64 trillion question that everybody is, I'm sure, thinking, which is, okay, this sounds great. Maybe some vaccines will be around not too long from now. Bottom line, next year, will people be able to go on vacations, Christmas gatherings, Thanksgiving gatherings? Will we be able to walk around without having masks on our faces? Will we be able to go back in most parts of the country to movie theaters? Is that going to happen, say, a year from now? Well, I sure hope so, because I'm going to miss Thanksgiving with my family this year because it's not safe. And by the way, we're talking about why this is such an exciting development. It's not here yet, people. So Thanksgiving and Christmas and all the other holidays, we're going to have to be really careful. Um, basically, a year from now, what's going to make this possible? I think the vaccines are looking pretty promising. The thing that worries me right now is will people actually decide to take them Polls are saying as much as 50% of Americans say, I don't think so, because of all the ways that this has been turned into conspiracy theories and other kinds of shade has been thrown in the direction about whether these are being done right or they're too fast or, or maybe they're not going to be safe after all. This is really tragic and troubling. If we end up with a circumstance where the best science in the world has produced the most amazing vaccines that you could possibly imagine in the shortest time that's ever happened in history, and Americans turn their back on it, and then COVID-19 goes on for two or three or four or five more years, we will really have dug ourselves into an unnecessary and very deep hole. So that's one of my concerns. If so, we want to be doing what we want to do a year from now, that's going to be up to all of us to try to look at the data and decide, let's do this. So how do we literally pound this into people's heads so that we don't go down that road that you just, the sort of what if nobody wants to or not enough people want to take it? How do you just kind of shake people and say, wake up, this is good stuff. Uh, we need it if you want to get back to normal. And this other stuff is nonsense. Well, I guess I'm actually somewhat optimistic here. I think the American people so far have had a problem trying to sort through all of the noise about the vaccines and whether they're going to be safe or not. And the theories that are out there on social media have had a heyday. 
Uh, I do believe once there are real facts, people will start to pay attention to that. But let me just say, for people who are spreading information about the vaccines, like, you know, it's got a chip in it that means Bill Gates is going to be in your brain. Shame on you. Stop that stuff. This is not <laughs> the way to help people and save lives. Oh, is that, is, that the reason, is that the reason why I keep hearing Bill's voice in my head? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now? Now? Look what she's done. No. Go to late night radio. Yeah. This is where you belong. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dr. Francis Collins. So you and Dr. Fauci are going to like get one of these on TV, right? So we can all watch. I'm, I'd be happy to do that. I don't want to jump to the front of the line when there are other people who may be more needy and deserving. But when my time comes, my sleeve is getting rolled up. All right. All right. Dr. Francis Collins, a physician geneticist, director of the National Institutes of Health. Doctor, thanks for coming back to the show. The three West Coast states, California, Oregon, Washington, have issued new COVID travel advisories because of the increase in the number of cases. They are advising against non-essential travel. They're also asking people, quarantine for 14 days after you come back from a trip. Anne Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology and infectious diseases at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. So, Anne, what happens with Thanksgiving on the way? Well, you know... We are already seeing a surge in cases in Southern California, California, and nationally. So I think we we can all predict where this is going to go if we're all not very careful and do our part to be able to reduce spread of the virus. Just in the last several days, we've seen a, a very alarming trend of increasing cases. Uh, and And so I think the bottom line is we really need to do our best to wear masks, social distance, hand hygiene, avoid crowds, and avoid those family gatherings. Don't forget, just a few days ago, the mayor of Los Angeles really noted the point that 10% of people who tested positive last week uh, indicated that they had been in gatherings of 10 people or more. We know that those gatherings are dangerous. So we've got these advisories now, but they're only that, right? Advisories aren't really teeth. They're not talking lockdowns. But is this going to do anything? Do you think they're saying stay local? So, you know, don't go to another state. And if you do quarantine for 14 days, but it, it is up to people to actually listen, do this on their own accord. Absolutely. It's just it's up to people to do the right thing. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. I always say my my, my, my late father-in-law, Dr. Morris Clayman, always used to say it's much easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. And I think that that is very, very important advice to heed right now. Thanksgiving is going to be a very different Thanksgiving this year. I would spend the energy thinking about all the fun we're going to have next year on Thanksgiving as opposed to providing opportunity for the virus to spread this Thanksgiving. But if everybody doesn't get together, who carves the turkey? <laughs> well, that's a that's a very <laughs> good question, and I think that, that this year the turkey just might not be might not be carved as beautifully. But it's just going to make you absolutely enjoy next year's turkey better. All right, this is the make do year. We yes. do as much as we can uh, safely and uh, wait till do the other things next year. Dr. Anne Ramoyne, Professor, Epidemiology, Infectious Diseases at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Elon Musk is one of the richest men on the planet. In case you don't know him, he runs Tesla and SpaceX. 
But even the rich can't escape the coronavirus, or can they? Musk says he's feeling sick, so he took four COVID tests, rapid antigen tests. He took four because two were positive and two were negative. Same nurse, same test. He put this all on Twitter. He tweeted that something bogus was going on. Let's go through this with Dr. Jeffrey Baird, pathologist and chair of laboratory medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. So, doctor, uh, when it comes to these tests, is one type more likely to give you a false positive than others? What it looks like from his tweets, and so I'm only going off of his tweets here, it looks like he had an antigen test, and that probably would have come from a nose swab. And the antigen tests are notoriously both insensitive, meaning they tend to miss uh, uh, COVID diagnoses if it's uh, if there's not much virus around. So in someone who might not be too sick or someone who's asymptomatic. And then the other thing that they do on the flip side is they have a higher rate of false positives than the standard of care tests, so those PCR tests you talked about. So so uh, it's a real good question on if you get four and two or one, you know, two are positive, two are negative. Which are the wrong ones? Obviously, it's either positive or negative. And he's said that he has a PCR test waiting. Uh, that sometimes will, will take overnight, and so he should know the truth at some point. But for right now, we can't really say which, which of those two, uh, which two of those tests were the right answer. Okay, so judging by that scenario, is this kind of going the way it's supposed to go? Although we don't like the look of it because it does get complicated. These tests, the rapid ones, they are just kind of for trying to surveil or get people together or do something as safe as you can. But when you do get a positive, that's when you go higher to the test that is better, the one that can take 24 hours. So then you really know. So that, that, that's, that's one way of looking at it, although these tests can be um, actually wrong most of the time. So if the likelihood if, it, you know, right now, unfortunately, this isn't the problem. There's a lot of spread right now. But if, if, if the expected answer, like if there's just a few people who are positive, like one in a thousand people are positive, the statistics of those antigen tests work out such that almost all positive tests are wrong. Um, and then the, the tests end up missing most people who are carrying the virus. So really the best use for those antigen tests is in uh, sick, sick people, you know, like in an urgent care type of setting or something like that, when you'd be inclined to trust the positive result. But when you're using it in an asymptomatic person, I don't, I don't know if, if Elon Musk has a fever or not. Well, on that um, note, sorry I, to I, jump in, but somebody asked him on Twitter, they said, how are you feeling? And he goes, I, or just symptomatic was the question. He goes, I've got some symptoms, nothing more than a general cold, is what he re- replied. Oh, that, well, then that he sounds has, like he has Then it. he has symptoms. <laughs> Yeah, that 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 would be consistent. Again, though, remember, you know, even uh, even in times when uh, people have symptoms, you know, the the positive rates in those folks uh, are, are you know five, ten, fifteen percent, depending on where you are. So, it, it, all comers with a fever or cold symptoms, it still may not be the most likely thing that he has. It could be something else. It could be a cold. It could actually be a common cold too. But the point is that the antigen tests are, are, are not the most reliable, although they're, they are more reliable in people who have symptoms, What because we, we would believe is they have just more virus in them. And then it's easier to detect that. It's easier to get a right answer. But, but, but here, of course, is the problem. You were mentioning that the antigen tests are good if you're, say, in a nursing home setting and maybe you have people who are already symptomatic. But as you know, a lot of these, because they're fast, are being used by businesses. They're being used by production companies and film and and, uh, television in order to uh, be able to do the work they need to do. But for the most part, they're testing asymptomatic people. So it doesn't sound like that's a very good test. Uh, no, it's not. And I just you mentioned nursing homes. The same sort of problems uh, with antigen testing in nursing homes 
uh, arises. And, and just think about this. If you're going through a nursing home and trying to sort of figure out who's positive and negative with perhaps the idea that you'd put all the positive people in one room so that they didn't spread it to the, the people who were negative, if you had false positives, you might take people who didn't have it and you'd mix them around with people who did. So it can be dangerous to, uh, to, to give the wrong answers for a test. Um, the, the real answer about lab testing for anything in asymptomatics is that really lab testing adds a little bit of marginal extra protection to what you're doing, but it is not the, the end-all, be-all things. It does not, you know, by itself ensure safety. Just look at what happened in the White House, for example. They had been doing antigen testing for quite some time and had a gigantic outbreak. So it, it in and of itself isn't a standalone solution to getting back safely. You have to do all the other things, masking, distancing, and, and honestly avoiding um, congregate situations and gatherings. And um, if, if you can do all those things, then a, a test helps in addition to it. But you can't just ignore all the things, not wear masks, get right close to each other, have big groups and do that. It's a it's a, this, the same thing that we've seen with, uh, you know, sports teams, too. They're doing a lot of antigen testing in sports right now, too. But periodically teams get shut down um, because there's outbreaks. It doesn't it's it's not a perfect barrier. Dr. Jeffrey Baird, pathologist, chair of uh, laboratory medicine, University of Washington School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after this short break, can the economy withstand another round of strict lockdown? This recent spike in cases has officials all over the country considering widespread shutdowns again, but can local economies possibly survive if that happens again? The first time was bad enough for the businesses. KYW's Matt Leon talks to David Fiorenza, professor at the Villanova School of Business, asked him first about unemployment. It's creeping lower and lower at a slow rate, like a dripping faucet. I'm waiting for the day when I can actually talk to you and others and say, oh, the claims are only a couple hundred thousand. But I think we're way, way in the future for that. And to that point, we haven't talked a lot about this, but there was nearly 300,000 people uh, taking advantage of that pandemic unemployment assistance, which is basically for gig workers, you know, self-employed people. Uh, so we're still like a million people dealing with some sort of, 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 of benefit here. Oh, absolutely. And if there are stores, um, they're not 100% open and tourism and travel is not 100% open. So our gig workers who do Uber and Lyft, uh, even taxi cab drivers uh, are still roaming the streets looking for for extra uh, passengers. So it's a big multiplier effect that you talked about here. And I think this is going to continue till the end of the year at the very, very least. And we have had the election, uh, and it does still doesn't look like we've got a, another CARES Act uh, coming down the pike. I would say, reading the tea leaves, I think we're looking at after the, the inauguration. And that's a long time away, and a lot of people are struggling right now. Uh, how concerned are you the longer we wait on this, uh, that the more people it's, are going to be past the point where this could save a business or save a house? Right. Sure. That's a very big concern because there's a time when uh, the federal government will decide to do something. And there's that lag time of when they actually get the money out to the people, which could be more than than a month after something is passed. If you want to call it quick action, you could say the Federal Reserve is the quickest of everybody. But it's the federal governments and even our state governments uh, do not act with a swift motion. 
Speaking of the Federal Reserve, uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke this week, and he had a quote, something to the effect of, we're recovering, but to a different economy. I think when you take a step back, that's pretty obvious, given what we've seen, everybody working from home, kind of the transformation of the workforce and stuff like that. But uh, to hear it out of the Fed Chair's mouth, uh, it's pretty sobering. It is. And he's actually talking reality. People are are not traveling as much to their jobs, maybe one day a week, if even that. I still continue to look at all the SEPTA parking lots, uh, especially in the outlying suburbs. Um, as you get close to the end of a lot of the train lines, and there's still not many cars there um, in the parking lots, that's an indication that people are working from home or people are not employed as much. So Jerome Powell he, it's reality when he speaks at this point. We're pretty much uh, really waist deep now into the holiday season, but we've also got a virus that is worse now than it was in the spring. Some of the numbers are are staggering. You're starting to see some people, some people in authority, governors and such, start to hint about the possibility of shutdowns again. I mean, this is this holiday season, I would imagine, for a lot of specifically small businesses is kind of going to be the last stand. If they can do what close to what they normally do, they might be OK. But we're in a really tenuous spot here, aren't we? We are, Matt. And that's why you've seen some of the major changes. as well. The smaller stores uh, last month actually start things such as Black Friday events or pre-Christmas sale events or pre-Thanksgiving sale events. Uh, our governor in New Jersey has even talked about letting some of the local municipalities make the decisions instead of himself making a statewide uh, decision about various things. Uh, I, I am by no means a scientist or a doctor, but I think if, if we practice what we're supposed to be practicing, we can get through a lot of this, Matt. We've talked a lot about that, you and I, throughout the months. This latest surge is hitting just about everything and everywhere, including the sports world. NFL teams are dealing with positive cases and college games are getting canceled and rescheduled left and right. Is football in danger? With us is Lee Steinberg, super agent, founder of Steinberg Sports Entertainment. Lee, how do you think the NFL has done so far in handling things? They've done a splendid job in dealing with completely novel, unprecedented situation. No one really understands why coronavirus is trending the way it is. And remember, people were getting really tired of watching the Masters from uh, 1990 or Tiger King on Netflix. And <laughs> uh, the sports have been innovative. They've been flexible. They've been clever in terms of how they addressed it in in basketball they went to a whole quarantine in the bubble in baseball we pulled the season off and those two are important for those of us in southern california because we got the world series victor and we got the uh nba victor um in football again it's a a sport where the players are tested basically every day or every other day there are all sorts of protocols that govern them. They're probably much safer than that they were if they were uh, uh, not playing football. And when you think of college football, um, would you rather have your son who was a college football player under the administration of Nick Saban, where they're getting tested all the time, where they're mandatory mask wearing, uh, or have them running around like the other millennials who uh, are all getting sick? 
But of course, you you do have these unfortunate incidents uh, with uh, college football. Uh, Mike is is googling really fast at the speed of light. I was trying to remember where where everybody rushed onto the field. We were just talking about this yesterday, and I always forget. Yeah, uh, uh, and it was Notre Dame, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, and you know that is we don't know yet because it's too early whether or not there's going to be that's going to end up being a super spreader event. But there are lots of people, some wearing masks, a lot not. They were shoulder to shoulder, screaming, shouting, you know, and that's a dangerous thing. I agree, but they shouldn't have allowed that to happen. Preparation is the most important thing, and making it really clear is important. I went uh, down to. Miami to see a Dolphin game a couple of weeks ago, our client Tua Tango Vailoa, his first start. When you got out of your car, they said, get right back in if you won't wear a mask. So they started there. The entry was completely spaced out. They had, if you were bigger than three or four, you had to keep waiting. They kept wiping down everything. The concessions were prepackaged. Uh, when you got on the escalator, you couldn't uh, bunch up. You had to be separated. And I was sitting in a box, and they must have scrubbed that thing down a million times. So um, kudos to uh, to league officials, uh, to individual franchises, and also to the venues themselves, because they're doing a terrific job. The thing you're talking about happening in college they should have pre-prepped those students that you can't walk on the field and had enough security to keep them off. All right. Like you said at the beginning, there's a hunger for it. People want people want sports. Uh, Lee Steinberg, player agent, founder of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. Thanks for coming back, Lee. Maybe the pandemic hasn't been that devastating to the economy. The long-term impacts could be quite positive. The U.S. is going through what's being called a startup boom. One economist from the University of Maryland says more businesses are being created right now. Now, many of the new businesses are just, you know, people who were laid off and were forced to go out on their own, which makes sense if you think about it. The largest area for new business creation is online retail, as people avoid stores when they can. The U.S. is now ahead of other rich countries in new business creation during the pandemic. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.